0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Tony Fidel, co-founder of Nest Labs, a company that makes smart digital assistants for the home. Their first project, the Nest Learning Thermostat, launched to consumers in fall of 2011. Prior to founding Nest, Tony spent nine years at Apple. He was the senior vice president of Apple's iPod division, which oversaw the development of the iPod and iPhone. He served as a special advisor to Steve Jobs until late 2009. Tony previously worked as the chief technology officer at Phillips. He is a graduate of the University of Michigan. Welcome. Thanks, Jessica. Tony, you grew up going to 12 schools, is that right? Yeah, was it I went schools? to
1: 12 schools over 15 years.
0: Why did your family move around so much?
1: Well, my, my, my dad was um, in sales at uh, Levi Strauss, the jeans company. And uh, we would move wherever the company wanted him to start new business, new sales, or primp up sales in those areas.
0: Was there any sense that you might want to do the same?
1: And my dad would always encourage me. He was like, I love it. He loves his job. He loves the relationships with the, the, the people that he, that he worked with. But at the end of the day, he would say, use your mind, use your mind, don't use your hands, use your mind. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, where I am now, I'm using my mind and my hands.
0: From an early age, uh, you had encounters with technology and had a fascination with how things worked. Uh, what are your earliest memories of that?
1: Well, I think my first memory of just, you know, kind of building things and understanding things was through my grandfather. My grandfather would put me in harm's way, so to speak, when I was four or five and say, hey, change this electrical switch. Let's let's build a birdhouse. And then ultimately, when I we would move away from him, then I would go and take apart old tube televisions and and various other products around the house just to see how they worked I didn't know much but I was just curious you know take mm-hmm. it apart see what's going on
0: you mentioned your grandfather is this your paternal grandfather yeah my, mo-
1: my mother's my mother's father
0: half your family is from Eastern Europe your paternal side is is from Lebanon yes what influence did uh, did Lebanon or Russia have in your upbringing, if well, any?
1: Uh, well, food, number one, right? Mm-hmm. So we would have pierogi on one day, and the next day we would have, uh, you know, tabbouleh, and, and it would go back and forth. So holidays were very mixed, uh, you know, both uh, both Christian background families. But they were the both families were fully Americanized at that point. But there were still, you know, those great aunts and uncles that would come and tell the old stories. And, you know, you would have Russian being spoken or Arabic being spoken. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't learn any of those languages, but um, it was just it was just a nice influence.
0: Given that you came from an immigrant uh, family, was there any sense of like just having to hustle uh, and be entrepreneurial at all or pioneering?
1: For me, I just—I always saw my grandfather working, I saw my mother working, my father working all the time, and so that was just a normal thing. You know, when when we would uh, on the weekends, we would be cutting the lawns together, right? We would be building something, we would be repairing something. You were always doing something, fixing a window.
0: When was your first encounter with computers or with the technological world?
1: I think this was in 1979. Uh, I took a first uh, summer school course. Uh, in I didn't know what these computers were, but I said, I'm going to take some computer class. And it turned out to be um, an IBM 360 mainframe somewhere far away in a paper terminal. Uh, and I just started uh, using uh, paper, uh, paper punch cards and doing basic programming. But also my father, being in sales and being – he was like an early telecommuter, he – Levi's adopted a lot of technology very, very early um, for the salesmen, these remote salesmen, and so he would actually have these terminals that you would put your telephone on top of, and it would he, he would you would type things to place orders and things and so I got this kind of sense that things are coming
0: so your first computer was an Apple II when you were twelve years old. Do you remember how much it was?
1: Oh uh, absolutely because. Actually, this is the case where my grandfather um, doubled whatever I made that summer to help me buy a computer. He didn't know what it was, but because he was a a carpenter and also a superintendent, he knew tools were very, very important to do the next thing. So he saw this as a tool and he's like, I don't know what it is, but you really want it. So I'm going to go halfsies with you, but you just have to earn all that other money. So I worked incredibly hard that summer. He matched it and I got uh, the Apple II, I think it was about Mm $2,700. That was a lot of money back in those days.
0: What did you do with it?
1: Really, for me, I started programming because that was actually a culture, you know, you might know of Make Magazine today. Make Magazine, you open it up and you can do all these different hacker-like things. Well, back then, there was Apple Insider and there's some different other um, magazines like that, Insight Magazine, and they actually had programs in there mm. so that you could learn from those programs. I would, I would type them up, type them into the computer and see what they did and dissect them. Mm. And so I was able to literally learn uh, to teach myself programming through those, those, those magazines and books.
0: Okay. You were an avid, self-starting learner, it, it seems. Uh, how were you as a student in
1: school? Um, I was very good at the things I was interested in. And the other things that bored me, you know, I was not necessarily a great student. I, I only did things that I was very curious in. And so in, in the case of um, computer class, because I had already done computers, I went to computer class and literally in that class, uh, I would try to teach the class. And. Obviously, that was much the chagrin of the teacher, and lit- at the end of each of those classes, I was almost thrown out every single time. Mm. So, you know, it's, <laughs> uh, uh, let's put it this way, I was not very contained. <laughs>
0: Another interest of yours was music growing up. Uh, growing
1: up in Detroit, yes.
0: What kind of music, and, and where did that start?
1: Well I think it first started um when I was young probably in second or third grade we had ne- next door neighbors in Rochester New York and those those neighbors were in you know in in junior high and high school and I, I don't know why they wanted to hang out with us, but they did, and I would l- I would listen to you know uh, bands like Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith back when they were really in the day, and I was like these are wonderful, and and from that I just started learning about music. My family was really not musical, but mm-hmm. my brother and I we just awoke to that.
0: You've worked as a DJ from from time to time. So. Yeah, it was
1: it, you know nothing nothing like you would think of a DJ today. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I would I'd literally um, take my music out and people would go, oh, I like that. Could you play for this party? Could you play for that party? And so I just got to getting bigger and bigger events and and doing different things for friends. And it was just a hobby for me.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tony Fidel, co-founder of Nest Labs, a company that makes smart digital assistants for the home or office. Tony previously worked at Apple, where he oversaw 18 versions of the iPod and three versions of the iPhone. He served as a special assistant to Steve Jobs until late 2009. You graduated from the University of Michigan, and your first job was at a a company called General Magic, which right. was a spin off of Apple.
1: Yes, right. absolutely. Um, uh, there were a few people who left Apple to create, and Apple was one of the first investors in General Magic, but the founding team were. uh, were the initial engineers and marketers that did the the Macintosh in 1982, 83, 84. Hmm. So I wanted to go and work with my heroes, the people who really knew how to build computers and the things that I loved. I wanted to go learn from them.
0: And when you left there to join Philips, you had plans for a new generation of hardware devices. How seminal was General Magic in your own development?
1: Well, it was... It was, um, it was amazing on many different levels. Number one, on engineering and, and just learning how to engineer and design products from the best minds in the time. So, so we got to do that. And then I also learned about partnering and how to try to work with companies all around the world. And I was only 21, 22 at the time. So I got to learn about how to work with these different companies to try to build a, a technology platform. Then also with marketers like Joanna Hoffman and, and, and people like that who could then tell the message out to consumers and see if we could get them to buy. So I also learned what not to do Which because was? General Magic, mm. was a, it was a, a huge flame out. It tanked. We probably sold, I think, maybe 10,000 devices for a company that had almost a half a billion dollars invested in 1992, 93 timeframe. W- but, but, but remember, at General Magic, what we were doing, we were creating what was a precursor to the iPhone. Just twenty years ahead of its time.
0: So, was the fact that you were too early and that the market wasn't ready for it was that the major contributor to the company's demise, or what other factors were there?
1: I think you know there was a, a there were too many features. There it was there was too much technology, and there wasn't necessarily a market that could understand it yet because we were so far ahead. And then the internet occurred, mm-hmm. right? All of these came together and it just it, it unraveled very quickly mm-hmm. and so we found a lot of our initial engineers and a lot of our uh, team they went off to be the founders of ebay mm-hmm. right and web tv and all kinds of other incredible companies all around silicon valley um and, and in some cases there one reporter said that general magic was the the greatest startup that had to die right <laughs> so that we could it could let all of these different flowers um bloom
0: while other, other colleagues were going to eBay and other startups, you went to Philips, which had more than 260,000 employees. And you started the mobile division within Philips. And at the time, you were 25 years old. Talk to me about that experience.
1: Sure, absolutely. So at General Magic, I saw this um, this amazing wealth of technology that was created over a span of four or five years, um, kind of languishing. And I said, there's got to be some great things we can do with that technology. And I started creating my own product, what I thought we could use this technology for. And I took it to General Magic, and they said, you know, we, the, the, the die is cast. We have this roadmap. An interesting thing, maybe we'll do it one day. Mm-hmm. And it, that frustrated me because I could see we were not heading down the right path. And specifically, I reached out to Philips Electronics through my contacts there, and they got me a, a meeting with the CEO of Philips. Uh, and I pitched them this product.
0: What was the product at the, the time? The product. Um, the
1: product ultimately turned out to be uh, the, one of the very first Windows CE devices it was called the Philips Velo, and it was a. It was a. Um, what we call like a billfold like product that had a little keyboard and a little display and a modem so that you could do emails from wherever you were and 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 take notes and and do spreadsheets it was a very critically acclaimed product one of the best of the, of its kind at that point um, and that was born out of my my um my my time at general magic and i was just lucky enough at that age to to learn about how to build that kind of product and build a team and uh, learn how to be actually a true leader um, inside of a large company.
0: And speaking of leadership, it wasn't uncomplicated. You would say that when you would get excited, you would get loud. What exactly? <laughs> what did you mean?
1: Well, you know, I, I'm naturally an animated character, and so I'd, I when I was passionate about something, I would raise my voice. I would start flailing my arms, and I was like, "We have to do this." You understand? And so it was this. It, it was this. Um, uh, sometimes it was called youthful overexuberance, and uh, and because I just really wanted these things to happen, and and when I when I grew into a leader, um, and it and it was it took some time. I learned that my voice and the way I carried myself would amplify, and I learned that that kind of thing wasn't so great, you mm-hmm. know, because you needed to be a rock steady leader all the time. I think for the leadership role I was given. I had to grow into those shoes, um, and it was a, it was a and I grew as fast as I could. It, there was one funny funny thing, um, which was the team. They hung a um, a a big siren and flashing light above my desk, and whenever I was in the office, they would turn on, flip on this siren, and say, "Tony's in the office," and so everyone knew like, oh, "Tony's here, watch out." Um, but it was all in jest. It was a lot of fun.
0: I'm Jessica Harris, you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tony Fidel, co-founder of Nest Labs. We'll hear more from Tony, coming up. I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is Tony Fidel, co-founder of Nest Labs, which makes the Nest Learning Thermostat. Prior to starting Nest, Tony spent nine years at Apple where he led the team that built the iPod and the iPhone. He was a special advisor to Steve Jobs until 2009. You finally left Phillips and you started your own company called Fuse in 1998. That's correct. What was the ambition for Fuse? What was the idea for, uh, behind Fuse?
1: Well, I had seen this digital transition occurring in the home. We were looking at HDTV coming into the home. I had now experienced um, MP3s for the first time. And I thought, and MP3 is the digital audio file. And I thought, as the as the world becomes more and more digital inside the home, where are people going to buy these things? And so my I was envisioning creating the Dell of consumer electronics, literally somewhere which you could go online in the internet to buy a Home theater system that would be fully configured for you.
0: What was the response from from companies uh, and and from venture capitalists?
1: It's a, it's a great question. So, um, given my track record, I was able to pull uh, in uh, in money from people who trusted that we knew what we were doing. And so we had, we were aligned with uh, uh, Samsung at the time. We were, uh, I had a few other angel investors and we got started and we were doing really well um, in terms of defining the vision, but it was gonna take another set of capital to really pull this off. The internet boom was happening. This was 99, right? No one wanted to do anything with hardware. They're like, hardware, this is crazy. You just want, build a service, you know, uh, an internet service, cheap, easy, 10 people. Don't waste your time with this. And I said, no, I think this is really important. And uh, then the internet bubble happened and it burst. And uh, we ended up not having any 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 chance to get any money, regardless of whether we are an electron company or an atom company. And so we were languishing.
0: And what was going on in, in your own personal life at the time? Like, uh, uh... So,
1: so, uh, so personally, I was, you know, I was working day and night trying to get fuse off the ground. I, I think I made 85 different VC pitches yeah. to try to, to raise the money.
0: Why not try to innovate uh, this product also inside of, of Philips? What was the catalyst for leaving Philips?
1: I think the, the first one was is I just wanted my, my own company. I, I had learned a lot at Philips about we could build anything, but can a company actually sell it? At the end of the day, the people who were entrusted to sell and ma- market it, they didn't understand the product. We had a tough time when we said we have a PDA. People were like, well, we don't have a place for PDAs in the, in the store. Right. We don't know how to sell these things. Mm-hmm. And so Philips decided they'd rather sell TVs than our stuff.
0: You have a a very acute um, engineering acumen, but you also seem to have overlaid that with a real uh, business sense as well, uh, which seems unique to have both coexisting.
1: It it was a learned, it was a learned skill. I think a lot of um, sales and marketing came from my dad and watching what my dad did um, at Levi, but then also... I I saw the failure of General Magic. I also had my own startups along the way. And so it just developed over time. And I was able to use the technology as my way of the foot in the door because that would be my differentiation.
0: Incidentally, one of the one of the companies you went to uh, during this challenging period when Fuse wasn't getting off the ground uh, was Real Networks, uh, where you had a brief stint for about six weeks prior to going to Apple. Yes. And some say that your transition to Apple uh, was a turning point in the digital music evolution <laughs> to some degree. D- do you see it that way?
1: Uh, yeah absolutely you know it's undeniable that the iPod and iTunes and then the iTunes music store and then obviously became the iTunes store have has changed the music business the video business and and movie business
0: I guess my question is sort of the counterfactual had you stayed at real networks would the evolution or revolution taken place could it have taken place in real networks versus Apple
1: I think that Apple has some very unique characteristics being that it touches every part of the consumer experience. Hardware, software, now retail. Uh, Real Networks was uh, more of a technology company and more of a software company who was going to partner with hardware companies to get some of these things done. So I think that having the, as we call, whole widget thinking underneath one tent is incredibly important for the rapid evolution that happened uh, that the iPod and iTunes brought to the, the marketplace.
0: Okay, so um, finally, uh, you, you left Real Networks and you knocked on Apple's door. Uh, and uh, They
1: knocked on my door, actually. Oh, did they? Yeah. How so, did that happen? So while I was at Fuse... And we were going through these uh, difficult times, I decided I had to just clear my head for a little while, and I went skiing for a couple of days. And as I'm on a, a, a chairlift uh, in Vail, I, I got a call from John Rubinstein, mm-hmm. who was the senior vice president of of uh, hardware at Apple. And he said, "Hey, we'd love you to uh, love to talk to you. We'd think about you as a consultant to come and work on this new idea we have." And lo and behold that. Ultimately, you know, six weeks later, I created the the initial model and the, all the block diagrams and, and spreadsheets and all the things necessary to justify this product. Um,
0: being the, I- the iPod.
1: Being the iPod that ultimately then, you know... Uh, 10 months later shipped to the world.
0: It's been said that you are the godfather of the iPod or the father of the iPod or what would you call yourself? And I I, I know you're going to say it's a whole team of people but what would you tell your kids?
1: I I would say that I was a major force in making it a reality, but it took a team of people all around me to do so. But mm-hmm. um, I was very passionate. I'm passionate about music. I was passionate and still am about portable products, and so it wasn't just uh, and and Apple wanted to get something new out. So it was the environment, it was the people, um, and uh, and it was myself really all driving ahead saying we need to make this happen.
0: So when you did get the call from John Rubinstein, uh, where was Apple at that moment in terms of creating the iPod? Were they far along and saying, "Okay, we we want a a personal device for music?" or is that where you came in?
1: So so as it was described to me at the time, was that iTunes had just shipped about 2 months earlier and iTunes was a phenomenal um, music player, but it only worked on a Macintosh and you could rip your CDs and and play them back and create CDs on it. But they wanted to bring that music onto a, uh, you know, a Walkman like product. So they said that was the that was the frame. Now, what could you do given this context? Why don't you work with Jeff Robin and figure out what could be built?
0: There are so many versions about the the early days of of the iPod and, you know, everything was behind such closed doors and behind these uh, secret walls that that Steve wanted to to develop. Were you surprised by this level of secrecy that that Steve created uh, in in the culture? In
1: in some ways, no, I wasn't because at General Magic… The culture was based on what they had done with the Mac, Hmm. right? And so they had a super secret culture in the Mac. We had a super secret culture at General Magic. And so for me, that was just the only way you did business. So coming to Apple was, it didn't seem extreme to me. And uh, it's still odd for partners and people go, why do you do this? But at the end of the day, I believe it is the right way to get things done.
0: You mentioned that secrecy is pretty critical, but secrecy is not ironclad and there's always a leak here and there.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: so what good is secrecy ultimately? Well,
1: the secrecy, you know, it's hard to know what you can talk, with, uh, talk about on a project with your friends or with your, um, with your spouse or with partners. And so if you have a, a total culture of openness, Everything moves around and all of your competitors and everyone will ultimately know because Silicon Valley is a small place or a certain business environment is a small place because people leave companies and join others. And so you have to say, look, this is about a team. It's about our ideas. It's about something that we're creating that no one ever has seen before. We have to cherish this. This is ours. And when we're ready to tell as a team what we're doing, we can have the maximum impact. That's when we want to do it. And so Silicon Valley engineers understand that.
0: One of the reasons uh, Steve Jobs was focused on secrecy was he was always worried that his uh, key employees would be poached uh, by other firms. Uh, and, uh, you know, here you have Matt Rogers now working with you, a former Apple employee and other Apple employees. Um, and you did promise, Steve, that you would not make any competing products uh, with the iPod. How do you view your starting a new company with your colleagues from Apple?
1: Well, it's to me, there's there's two things. The The first one being... This is a free country. And you can look at it as when these people join your team, they're only yours and you can treat them any way you want. Mm. And there's another one which is they are free people. Mm. And they can they can choose at will to join any company they want and it's based on what the company can do for them and what they can do for the company. And it's, it, it, it's a give and take. So my, my belief after seeing both sides of this is that I like the freedom is king and it's up to the company and its culture to continue to retain those people. We will pay you competitive rates, but not ungodly rates. We are going to make sure that you have a, one of the coolest products that you could possibly wor- be working on. You know, this anti-poaching thing and all that other stuff. I just, I just don't think that's that's the right thing to do.
0: You ultimately spent about nine years at Apple, most of which was overseeing 18 versions of the iPod and and a, a few versions of, of the I- iPhone. At what point did you start to get itchy feet? Like, okay, I'm starting to think that I'd like to move on to my next thing.
1: Well, doing 18 generations of iPods is a lot of iPods. Um, but, you know, my wife also worked at Apple and she worked for Steve. And so the two of us were really, really, uh, you know, on a treadmill, just working all the time, working all the time. And um, ultimately we had kids, we had two boys and they were, you know, just born and and uh, one, and one year old. And, we were looking at each other and going, we're never going to be able to buy this time back. So let's go and, and, and focus on them, focus on the family, and then we'll figure out what's next after that.
0: How long after you you started working at Apple uh, did you uh, get married to Danielle Lampert, who yeah, is did. your wife?
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so my wife and I met uh, about a year after I, I started at Apple. And, um, and then we were married uh, eight months after after we met.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the co-founder of Nest Labs, a company that makes smart digital assistants for the home and the office, including the Nest Thermostat, which is their first product that they launched to consumers in fall 2011. How did the idea for Nest originate?
1: Well, my wife and I, we, we love the Lake Tahoe area. And so we decided that we were going to build a green home in in Lake Tahoe, uh, hopefully the the greenest home that we knew of, as well as the most connected home. And through the, the, the process of design, through the process of learning about all the products in the marketplace, um, we found deficiencies, or I found deficiencies all over the maintenance and usability of your home. And I was like... This is crazy. There's got to be better products. What were some of those? uh, Well, obviously, the thermostat was one. Mm -hmm. But uh, another one was solar panels. And luckily, over the span of when we started the project to the time we had to really commit to the project, solar panels were revolutionized. But when we looked at the thermostat, it had not evolved at all in those three years of design. And so after I had left Apple, I was, I found some time while, you know, I was thinking about what was next and I was like, maybe I can design my own thermostat. Mm -hmm. And as I started to dig into the problem, I found out, wow, this is, this simple thing is really hard to do. It's so hard and especially to create one that would be for an iPod or an iPhone like consumer. What is the next generation home going to look like when the interface to your home is always in your pocket or in your hand? That thermostat quickly turned into a smartphone in disguise. And so I one day I went and said, honey, I think I know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to make a thermostat. And she goes, what? The iPod guy making a thermostat? I don't get it. And then after I explained about, you know, for 15 or 30 seconds about what the business looked like, she's like, you'd be crazy not to do it.
0: What is so innovative and special about the Nest thermostat?
1: If you look at the Nest, it's it's a hockey puck. It's it's about the size of a hockey puck with high-quality materials. And so when you look at it, you're like, whoa, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. It's something Mm -hmm. totally different. And it's really simple to use. And so we went around that user-focused design and... Included not just a beautiful product, but also one that learns before the nest existed, the quarter billion thermostats that are in the us installed, less than ten percent of them were programmed to save any energy at all. Now with nest because we have a learning algorithm that basically when you you know when you get up in the morning, you might set it to one temperature, you go to the work uh, go to work, you set it to another come back another temperature. And when you go to bed, you set it to a temperature. We watch those patterns and then we just play those back for you. And 99% of all of our Nest thermostats are actually have learned a schedule or programmed a schedule to save energy. Mm-hmm. We also have auto away built in. So we sense motion in the home. And when we don't see motion for a period of time during waking hours, we actually then turn down the, the temperature to something that you specify to say, I'm not here. Save me energy.
0: Where did the name Nest come from?
1: Uh, back in the '90s, there was a show called uh, MTV Cribs. You know, it was all about your house, and so I kind of riffed off of that with my friends. I would say, "Hey, come on back to the to my nest. Come back to my nest. Let's go listen to some music, have some food, what have you." And so that stuck.
0: You mentioned Matt Rogers, who's your co-founder, who actually started off as your intern at Apple. That's uh, right. You brought him on board, and he said, you know, at some point he was kind of uh, done with making toys for people, uh, you know, mm-hmm, referring mm-hmm. to the iPod. How much of your motivation for starting this Nest Labs uh, and the, the thermostat is you're wanting to do something that's more socially minded outside of, you know, making toys?
1: <laughs> well, well, Matt, actually, I, I, I'll have to be very honest is matt kept bugging me that we should do this project because i was like i don't know i'm not ready for a startup right now i have kids and everything and he was like no we must do this so he was as driving a force and that's why he's a co-founder to make this happen but the you know once you have kids to your question you start looking at the world very differently and when it was very simple to say here's an unloved space a thermostat space tons of innovation can be brought to it and by the way a ton of innovation that I know how to build and by the way we can save a lot of energy how could I not do this?
0: So uh, again, you approached venture capitalists like in your fuse days, but uh, life has changed a little bit having developed the iPod. I assume raising capital was a piece of cake this time. Uh, Yeah, it
1: was a much, much different experience. It was more like, Tony, we know you're doing something. Let us give you money. We did a great job. We have to do the right thing for our investors and prove that we have a business case. But we were able to to basically get our money on a a handshake.
0: What has been harder for you than you thought in the early days of, of Nest?
1: what's been harder um well i thought that there was going to be much more expertise in the the h in the heating and cooling business that we could draw upon. I knew it was going to be hairy and 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 kind of scary to try to hook up to these 20, 30 and 20 and 30 year old systems cuz who knows what's out there. It's not like it's a typical USB port or some kind of standard that's out there. It's very very wild and wooly. And so what we had to do is we went into 500 homes and and looked at all of the different wiring combinations and built a team of industry experts, installers mm-hmm. who know how this stuff works from around the country to help us design the product.
0: Incidentally, could you tell me a little bit about the time you spent between Apple and Nest traveling? Sure, or sure inter-
1: absolutely. We decided we were going to travel the world with the kids, and we lived in Paris for six months and put our son, our young, our oldest son, into uh, French um, public preschool. While we were living in Paris, we, you know, we were literally a block away from the Louvre. Every time I'd go, I'd get inspired, I'd learn about more artists. And I saw that they had different periods of their life. You know, Picasso's green period, Picasso's blue period, what have you. And they took some time off and they went and re-energized themselves and did something different. And so I was looking at it and mapping it onto my own life going, what am I going to do next? And this is where, you know, I'm sitting on a bridge and I'm looking at the Louvre and I'm thinking of this thermostat and idea, and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have a better idea. Let's make this happen. That's when I called up Matt. We, yeah. we moved on from there.
0: Did you become uber-focused on, well, what thermostats did they have at the Louvre when you were walking around?
1: Uh, once you tune into a device that you have ignored for years and years and years, now you start looking. I see one here, and I see one there. It just shakes me every time, and I go, yes, ours is better. You see the light, the world in a whole new set of eyes.
0: It's like when you become pregnant, all of a sudden, everybody around you is pregnant.
1: Exactly. I never saw kids before until I have kids.
0: Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jessica.
0: My guest has been Tony Fidel, co-founder of Nest Labs. Coming up, we'll meet Berta Gonzalez Nieves, co-founder of Casa Dragones. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.